If you will grab your Bibles and stand with me, turn to Romans chapter 1. I'll be reading verses 8 through 17. Romans 1, 8 through 17, yeah. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at least succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I might impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may mutually encourage, be encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to the Greeks and the barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you who are also in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Let's pray. Father, you have been exceedingly kind to all of us. First in giving us your Son as our propitiation, then giving us your Spirit as the seal of our salvation. Father, you continue to heap kindness and mercy onto us through your common grace, through your word to us, Lord. And Lord, I just ask you now that you continue to do that, that, Lord, through the preaching of your word, that your body would be strengthened in their spirit to do the work that you have prepared for them. Pray this in Jesus' name. You can be seated. So, this is the end of the introduction or greeting part of the letter that Paul wrote to the Romans. We have to remember that these believers had never met Paul. Paul had never met them. And Paul had no idea what they knew about him. And with his past, you can rest assured there was a lot to be known about Paul. And the fact that at the same time, we know that there are a lot of false prophets, false teachers that were rising up within these churches trying to shipwreck people's faith. So Paul knew that it was important to write to these Christians. He wanted them to know who he was, and he wanted to know him, them to know who he was through the gospel that he preached. He ends his greeting section of the letter with his thesis statement, or the core of this whole letter found in verses 16 and 17. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and then also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from 
from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So the next eight chapters of the book of Romans is nothing but an explanation of what this gospel is. And then the final eight chapters is basically telling us how then we should live because of this gospel. Before he got there, first, he wanted them to know something about him. And that something was that he had been praying for these uh, believers. And we can learn a lot about what godly prayer looks like by reading these verses. Quite often we go about the business of praying as if it's, well, a business. Or it's just something that we've learned to do before we sit down to eat a meal. Paul knew that praying was much more than that. Paul knew that praying was speaking to the eternal and living God. He knew that because of Jesus Christ, and only because of Jesus Christ, he could enter into the throne room of grace. That's something that we should never forget, that we believers are the only ones that can do that. None others. People out there that, you know, they want to throw up these prayers or whatever, God hears our prayers specifically because of Jesus Christ. So, we know that Paul was a praying man. We have record of his prayers in his writings. And the first order of business in his praying was thanking God for these saints. And I just want to step back and tell you these saints, I want to echo Paul. I want to thank God for you. And I do thank God for you quite often. You guys, through your faith, have built me up in my faith. And that is a testimony to the goodness of God in his body. But Paul, when he says first, he's not listing a step-by-step process of how we should pray. He basically wanted to highlight the fact that these believers, whom he had never met, um, that they were very important to him, and their lives had impacted him, even though they'd never met each other. Verse 8 says, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. Saints, there's gold in just that one little part of this sentence. Paul thanks God. Not some vague impersonal celestial being out there, but he thanks my God. He says, I thank my God for you. Paul's relationship with the Lord was very personal. It was real. It was grounded in the person and work of Jesus Christ. This is why he could thank God through Jesus Christ. Christ is the conduit to the Father. He's our advocate. He's our mediator. And it's in his righteousness that we have access to the Father. And at the same time, it's only through Jesus Christ that these saints were saved. So, for these reasons, it was through Jesus Christ that Paul could thank the Father for these saints. And he goes on to explain what he thinks about them. Because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing, I mention you always in my prayers. This is the way that Paul prayed. 
he had great affection for the body of Christ, for his fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Paul's letters are filled with examples of his prayers. An example, Ephesians 1, 15 through 23. He says, For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope for which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and in his incomparability, his incomparable great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exercised, exerted in Christ, which he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand of the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the age to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything of the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who filled everything in every way. Did you notice that Paul is specific in telling these believers what it is about them that he's praying for? We shouldn't be afraid of that when we tell people, when we actually greet our brothers and sisters and telling them, I'm praying for you. Or, I thank God for you for this. Paul was never afraid of saying that. He told these believers in Ephesus what exactly it was about them that he thanked God for. And did you notice that the thing that he mentions is the same spiritual gift that he does in our verses today? And that spiritual gift is faith. We know that faith is a gift from God. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 says, For by the grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Jesus Christ for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Just like all gifts, this gift matters. And what we do with it matters as well. It is meant to be used. It is meant to be fleshed out for the good of the body and the glory of God. Faith isn't given to us as our own personal gift that we just hang on to. We mention faith in our church settings and people automatically think about salvation. They equate faith with salvation. And rightly so, for we're told that that's the means that God applies the propitiation of the Son to us sinners. But there's a lot more to faith than that. It's not just a conduit for salvation. Faith is imparted to the elect for the sole purpose, is not part of the elect for the sole purpose of bringing an unrighteous person into right standing with God. It's also the instrument that God uses um, in the process of our sanctification. So what exactly is faith? Well, we're told by the writers of Hebrews, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not yet seen. Hebrews 11.1. 1. This verse says that faith is two things, substance and evidence. So let's examine them one at a time to find out what exactly he's talking about. Because it seems contradictory to actually say faith, 
something that we can't see is a substance of something. But we, when we look how the word is, the same word is used in Hebrews 1.3, we can get a better understanding of what the writer expects us to understand by this definition. Hebrews 1.3 says, He, speaking of Jesus Christ, is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint or substance, same word there, of his nature. The, same, the substance that it's hoped for and that faith is, is the laying hold of, the grasping of the preciousness of God and his promises to us. This is exactly what David had in mind when he penned Psalm 34, when he said, taste and see that the Lord is good. Faith is substance, and the substance that it is, is nothing less than God himself. When we look at it this way, we can understand why faith then is a spiritual gift from God, and even better understand the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, illuminating himself to us. Now let's tackle the second word, evidence. The word for evidence is not used anywhere else in the New Testament, so we don't have the luxury of being able to look somewhere else in Scripture to help us determine what the meaning is. Having said that, extra-biblically, when the word is used, it means a proof or an argument or an evidence. And it's always objective, meaning it's based on facts, not subjective, based on feelings or emotions. Luckily, though, we have a great example of what it looks like just two verses away in Hebrews 11.3. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made by uh, out of things visible. So how do we know that the world was created by God out of nothing? The word of God tells us. There's our objective proof. A proof that those that don't have faith can't apprehend. They can read this truth, they can study this truth, but they will discount this truth as untruth because they don't have faith. There's another example of this evidence not yet seen in Romans 1.20. He says, For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and the divine nature, can be clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that has been made. Paul uses the same objective evidence of creation as the basis of an argument for the just condemnation of sinful men against God. They should have known, and they don't. The actions that the believers in Rome were taking were seen by all believers all over the world as faith. We're not told what these actions are, so we don't really know. But whatever they were had caused them to gain a reputation. No one or not, the same is true for us. Our minute-by-minute, day-by-day actions are building a reputation for each one of us. And the funny thing about reputations is each one of us wants to have a positive reputation. We want people to think positively of us. And yet, our reputations are built not on the big things that we do, but on the little things we do. The seemingly insignificant moments when those things come out of our mouth because we stubbed our toe. Or when I go off on my wife um, out of frustration over something not that she's ever even done. That's when our reputation is built, not 
when I'm walking through the church door, you know, 10 minutes early, so that everybody thinks, man, that guy's really spiritual. It was the same way with the believers in Rome. They had not set out to develop a reputation of faithfulness. They hadn't put together an ad campaign, you know, promoting the positive image to everyone to know that they are faithful. But by the grace of God, they had endeavored to live a life in a manner that had been God-glorifying and noteworthy to others. Because of their faith, the elect in Corinth could be built up in their faith, knowing that the same gospel that they believed there in Corinth was the same gospel that had empowered the believers at the very seat of the Roman Empire. And their faith had strengthened Paul himself. It was one of the reasons he longed to go to Rome. He desired to be built up in his faith through faith. Paul knew that all people were either balloons or lead weights. They will either build you up in your faith or they're going to bring you down in your faith. This is one of the attributes of the body of Christ. We learn to live by faith and even what faithfulness is from other Christians. This is the essence, the very essence or core of discipleship. Faith is a gift, but how we use faith, how we exercise faith, how we build faith is meant to be learned and then emulated. This should matter to each one of us. So much so that we will endeavor to find someone who is more mature in us in their faith and attach ourselves to them. You may say, well, I've tried doing that. But there are no more mature Christians around me. <laughs> really? In this congregation? <laughs> then you might say, well, the ones I've approached, they just, they don't want to disciple me. They're not interested in discipling me at all. Well, perhaps you're overlooking the person that God would have you attached to. Or perhaps your idea of what discipleship is, is completely man-centered. Because if we're expecting anyone to give up much of their time and focus on us, we're wrong. That's just not how discipleship works. Think about Jesus and how he discipled the apostles. How often are we told that he actually gathered the 12 together in a huddle group and you know, sat down and said, had a little discipleship session with them? Versus the amount of time we're told that he was out actually ministering to the masses, feeding the hungry, teaching, healing, and all the while the disciples were there watching him do it. They were discipled by watching Christ actually walk his faith out. They learned by emulating him. That's how we are supposed to learn faith. We are supposed to attach ourselves to someone, even because someone far away. You don't have to be that close to them. You don't have to have personal contact with them all the time. You find someone that you look at and you're like, man, that guy or that lady is a faithful brother or sister. I want to learn faith by them and just start watching them. Just ask questions once in a while. So what are you reading? Um, you, know, how are, you know, how are things going? But just watch them, and you will learn what it is to be faithful. 
And if you still can't find somebody, you can't find someone to disciple you, well, can I suggest maybe perhaps George Whitfield or C.H. Spurgeon or William Carey, Jim Elliott, Hudson Taylor, Amy Carmichael. We need to put down our preconceived ideas of what discipleship and pick up a biography because their lives of faithfulness have been chronicled for us. We can learn what it is to live faith, as faithful servants of Christ by reading their biographies. And we need to learn to live that so we can look, we know what it looks like practically. In verse 11, Paul says, For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift and strengthen you. Now Paul tells them that he's desired to come to Rome to meet with them, to actually meet them personally, to give them a spiritual gift that will strengthen them. But he can't be talking about faith because he says in verse 12, that is, that we may mutually be encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. So if the spiritual gift that Paul is talking about here isn't faith, what then is it? Well, he tells them what that gift is in verse 15. But before he does, he wants these believers to know that his tardiness in coming was not due to lack of desire. Beginning in verse 13, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as um, among the rest of the Gentiles. For I'm under obligation both to the Greeks and the barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I'm eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. That's the spiritual gift right there. That's the gift that he wanted to give them that would build them up in their faith, that would build them up in his faith, is the gospel. But if it's the gospel that he wishes to preach there, and through that, reap some harvest, then how are we to understand these under obligation to both the Greeks and the barbarians? Because Paul himself, in this letter, he says that it's the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Chapter 6, verse 23. So how do we reconcile these two things? Free gift, under obligation. Well, we have to understand what Paul meant by obligation. Because obligation can be a debt. When you purchase a car on time, you are obligated to pay the payments as you actually agreed to. That's one sense of obligation. But there's another mean for the word of obligation. An obligation can be a charge given to a person. Well, here's an example. So, in Paul's day, when Caesar wanted to send a message out, he would gather together a group of runners, and he would charge those runners with a message. Charge them mean basically he would give them a message and he would have them repeat it back to him. Okay, you guys got my message. This is who you have to go to and to deliver that message. Those runners were under obligation to Caesar to give that message exactly as he said it to everyone that he had um, intended them to go to. They were, he, they were under obligation to Caesar. But at the same time, they're under obligation to those who uh, Caesar says this message goes to. Because in that day and age, if those people didn't get that message, it could be life or death. And these runners had 
no authority to change that message, to condense it, to elongate it, to say, you know what, I really don't want to go to Comanche, so it's kind of out of my way, I'm not going to go there. They did exactly what they were told, they went exactly where they were told, and they gave the message exactly as it was told. They were under obligation to Caesar and also to the people who were meant to receive that message. Paul was under obligation to the Lord to take the message of the good news to all whom, they, whom um, the Lord had put in Paul's path. This included the folks in Rome, both Greek and barbarians. Now, the Greeks mentioned here are not actually the people who lived in Greece. It, that is a terminology used for the people who were steeped in the Greek learning. This would be the political and social elites, the very well-to-do, the upper crust, the one percenters in our day. Barbarians, on the other hand, well, that was something completely different. If the Greeks were the upper crust, the barbarians then would be the crumbs that fell to the ground from the bottom crust that had been walked on and were of no value at all. Matter of fact, barbarian was a term of derision. Only the unwashed masses were considered barbarians. The unlearned, the politically outcast. Matter of fact, barbarian actually is a term of, of contempt or um, derision. Literally, these people's language was so bad that for the Greeks, the only thing that they heard from them when they spoke was bar, 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 and which is why they were called barbarians. In other words, man, your English is so bad, I can't even understand you. Um, to these two, Paul was under obligation because all humanity is the same. We are all, all of us, no matter where we come from, what education level, we are all nothing more than disobedient, treasonous, sinful worms. And we will all face the same eternal damnation because of our treason against God. Some worms may look better than others. Some worms may have better wormholes. But we are all nothing more than worms. We, like Paul, are under obligation to preach this same gospel to both the Greeks and the barbarians, to the wise and to the foolish. And if we preach this gospel correctly, it will offend people. Because the gospel is offensive to all people. And it's the only means that God has determined for any and all of us to be saved. We all, no matter what our skin color, what our background is, what our musical preferences might be, our educational level, or even language, we are all required to confess with our mouths and believe in our hearts that Christ is Lord or be damned for not doing that. The, play, the playing field is completely level at the cross. All so-called privileges vanish when you stand before the cross and see the radiant beauty and glorious majesty of the crucified king. His true church is colorblind, it's gender neutral, and it's age inclusive. And his children should identify 
first with him before they identify with anything else. His children should be able to travel anywhere in the world and gather with believers and have communion with them. This was true of the church in Rome. It was made up of not only Greeks and barbarians, but Jews as well. The same thing is true today. What was happening there in Rome is happening here in the world today. I just recently spoke to a pastor friend of mine in Hawaii. He came back from a, a trip to China. Um, his church in Hawaii has adopted a zero area of Tibetan folks in China. Now, the Tibetan folks live in China now, which used to be Tibet. The Chinese people have been very ruthless and cruel to Tibetans. They don't get along very well. And yet, again, this man went over there because these people had not heard the gospel. Well, God has been gracious, and he's actually um, um, opened the eyes of the, uh, the, um, the Chinese folks there in this little town outside of where the Tibetans are. And there's a little body of believers now that is formed of Christians. And the Lord has given them a heart for the Tibetans. So, they are now taking the gospel to the Tibetans. So this man from Hawaii went to China. You, now, one of the things you, I haven't told you is that this man is Japanese-American. And if you know anything about history at all, you know that the Chinese hate the Japanese. Matter of fact, you go to China today, I will tell you right now, every state-sponsored TV channel has a soap opera playing that is showing the atrocities that the Japanese did against the Chinese people just to continue to foster this hate within the people. It's very tangible. I went there one time with this pastor, and I remember um, our missionaries just bowing their head because some Chinese people came up to him and started speaking Chinese to him, and he said, uh, I'm sorry, I'm Japanese. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Everything changed at that moment. The Chinese people hate the Japanese. The Tibetan people hate the Chinese. And yet, here is this Japanese pastor going to China, to mainland China, and he's gathering together with a, a core group of these, of these Chinese Christians, praying so they could reach the Tibetan people with the gospel. A lot of what was being sung, um, the pastor couldn't understand because he didn't speak Ch uh, Chinese that well. But he knew that they were quoting the Nicene Creed. They were quoting the Apostles' Creed. They were teaching through the book of Acts, and he was actually able to have true fellowship with them, not because of language, not because of ethnicity, but outside of those things, because of the gospel. This was the spiritual gift which Paul desired to give to the believers in Rome. This was the gift that would build them up in their faith, and Paul as well. And he wanted to ensure that they got this most important of spiritual gifts, the gospel, right. Paul knew it was not only the gospel was the means of salvation, or the method of salvation for all men, it was also the very lifeblood of the church and the muscle milk of our faith. 
this is what many of us within our modern church um, lack understanding it is the gospel is not m- intended to be a once and done thing where you respond to the gospel and I'm good to go. It's more akin to a lifelong transfusion of the power of the glory of God supplied to the saints through the preaching and application of this truth. Many believers today don't even actually know what the gospel is. If you ask them to share the gospel, tell me what the gospel is. The first thing they're going to do is they're going to give you their testimony. They're like, no, that's, that's nice, but that's not the gospel. What is the gospel? Most people don't know. And worse than that is then less than 40% of Christ-believing, Christ-proclaiming people have ever shared the gospel with anyone. We don't understand ourselves to be under, under, under obligation to anybody. We don't understand the, this gift or the power of, of what the gospel is. We think this is just for us. We think that the gospel is given so that we can come into fellowship with God and I'm going to be good and that's just fine. But it is the gift and the application of this gift which is the center of this letter. It's the thesis statement for Paul's life. Verse 16 and 17. It says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So he begins his thesis statement by saying, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. To the Romans and to the religious Jews at that point, the gospel was offensive because of the cross. The cross was a cruel and horrible means of execution that was only saved for the scum. No Roman, no matter what they did, convicted or not, would ever be put on a cross. Ever. That was just for the dregs of society. And what was worse is that Jesus Christ had been publicly arrested, publicly humiliated, drugged through the streets of Jerusalem, and then crucified. Paul had every right to be ashamed of the gospel. And he had been until he was saved. After he was saved, he saw the cross of Christ for what it is. The power of God. It's a demonstration of the power through the gospel to bring people to salvation a power to uphold justice and at the same time to justify those that could never do so themselves. The power to create a universe and then to condescend to step down into that creation that he had created and then to subject himself to the cruelty of his creation. The power to stare death in the face and never blink. The power to rescue from our self-imposed death sentence those that he had chosen as his own. The gospel is a gift. Universalist message to the Jew first and to the Greek that all have fallen short of the glory of God. The message may be universal, but salvation is not. All may hear the gospel message, and all are supposed to hear the gospel message, 
but it's only those that believe, that have been given the spiritual gift of faith, that the spiritual gift of salvation is of any benefit at all. How those who believe are saved is now explained. This is where the gift of faith and the gift of the gospel uh, share a commonality. As I pointed out earlier, the gift of faith is built upon the very essence of God himself. Likewise, the gospel saves because contained within it is the righteousness of God. A concept that we, we need to understand exactly what that means. Righteousness at that time in the Greco-Roman world was understood as fair. In that culture, you could be law-abiding without being fair. But the righteous person was both. To better understand how Paul thought of righteousness, though, we need to look at how he used it. He tells us in 132 that the demand to live perfectly by God was a righteous demand and that his judgments on humans for not obeying those demands was also righteous. To fully understand how Paul understood his righteousness of God, we need look no further than chapter 3 of this letter. It says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at this present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God is not being arbitrary in his condemnation of all mankind for our sin against him. His law is fair, even to the unspoken law found within his creation. Our disobedience to him, which is sin, therefore must be punished. Otherwise, he's no longer right or just. Some ask, okay, why is it just to punish eternally someone for sin that's done in a temporal realm? The answer is because God is an eternal being of eternal value, of eternal worth. And as such, the punishment for treason against him must equal the crime. An eternity of punishment outside of the blessing of God whom we desire to dethrone. Likewise, God is not being unfair to save any person that he desires. If he had declared us righteous in our sinful state, he would have been unfair. But that's not what he's done. He has taken his righteousness and he has imputed it to us. Listen to how he described what was entailed in this in Isaiah 53. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up like him, like a young plant, and like a root out of the ground. He had no form of majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and equated with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. And he was esteemed, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, 
smitten by God, afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to a slaughter, and like a sheep that was before a shearer silent, so he not opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted as righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. When we understand righteousness this way, we can understand how Paul can say that not only the power of God is contained in the gospel, but also that his righteousness is encapsulated in his well. When we understand his righteousness this way, we can understand what Paul meant when he said that his righteousness is revealed from faith for faith. Paul has made it very clear that the spiritual gift of the gospel is meant for all types of people, no matter their social class, ethnicity, age, or sex. It would be easy to understand that the spiritual gift of faith is exactly the same, given justly and equitable amounts to all the elect in order to bring them to salvation. This then makes Paul's use of Habakkuk 2.4 perfectly understandable when he says, the righteous shall live by faith. We are, bright, I'm sorry, we are brought into righteousness through the gift of faith. And through the gift of, li- of faith, we live in eternal peace with God. And at the same time, it is by faith that the righteous shall continue to live and walk throughout our life here on earth. The question is, why is it then that we who have been ransomed by the blood of the Lamb, who are considered righteous because of his righteousness, why are we ashamed of the gospel? Do we not see the righteousness of of God revealed to us? Doesn't this matter anything more than what people think of us? Have we not been able to taste and see that the Lord is good? Or are we so selfish and self-centered that we actually think that we deserve the salvation that God has given us 
and all the benefits that we have through the union with Christ. What does it say of our hearts that we can come here weekly to celebrate all that the Lord has done and all that he is doing for us and then walk out the doors and never say a word to anybody? And we need to let this sink in, in this room. We are proud that we celebrate God correctly in the right preaching of his gospel, and we should be. But we need to understand that this, too, is a gift from God. We didn't figure this out ourselves. And what good is that understanding if we just hold on to it ourselves? What are we ashamed of? May the Lord have mercy on us. May he grant us increased measures of faith and increased awareness of the amazing gift that is his gospel, that we would live our lives with the sole purpose of bringing glory to him, that our lives will be marked by faith as we endeavor to live like our brother Paul, to make famous his name in all the earth. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for the precious gift of your Son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for giving us the truth of your word and illuminating that truth to us. Father, for the amazing gift of faith that you have given us. Father, I ask that you would build us up in our faith. Father, that through your Holy Spirit, that we would speak the truth of who you are, that we would not be ashamed of you, but that we would boldly proclaim your goodness and your mercy through Jesus Christ and him alone to those in this dying and horribly sin-stricken world. Thank you again, Lord, for your spirit. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.